On Monday, February 12th, student reporters at UC Santa Barbara who are involved with news, sports, and archives journalism attended a career talk featuring pioneering journalist Marianne Bendel. The workshop was part of a series of winter journalism events presented by KCSB-FM 91.9, the campus and community radio station at UC Santa Barbara. This quarter, 25 students are earning course credit for their participation in creating on-air content for KCSB. The group was very interested in listening to Marianne Bendel share stories about her career, which has taken her to all seven continents. She's written for several well-known news organizations, including CBS, USA Today, and Entertainment Tonight. A career highlight for Marianne, she says, was spending three months on the MV Gondwana, the Greenpeace ship in Antarctica. As an interviewer for USA Today, Marianne has talked to many recognizable names and world leaders, including the Dalai Lama, Dr. Jonas Salk, Lucille Ball, presidents of El Salvador and Finland, and Benjamin Netanyahu twice. Here's Marianne's story. I went to Marquette University, which is a Jesuit school in Market, in um, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. I majored in radio and TV and film, and I got a Bachelor of Science degree in speech. Uh, they call me a pioneer woman journalist, and I think I am because I got an award from Marquette for being, being one. I like to refer to myself privately as the Neanderthal <laughs> because there were no women working in news when, when I started doing it. Uh, my first job was an interesting one, though. Uh, I just lucked into it between my junior and senior year of, uh, of college. I worked for a radio station in Wausau, Wisconsin, that's where I'm from. Uh, and uh, it was owned by a congressman named Congressman Okonski. And it was a radio station that sunrise to sunset, there was me and an engineer, and that was it, nothing else. There was no computers, no, I mean, it was back when the engineers did everything, you know, and I, I announced everything, and that was it. And then I also worked for a TV station in that same little town doing uh, as the floor director uh, that same summer. So I learned a lot. So I thought, yay, I can go right into television. Wrong. <laughs> they weren't hiring women at all. So uh, after uh, the first real job I got was in the early 60s, I got with CBS KNX Radio in Los Angeles, and I, I was able to produce a radio news talk show. I wanted to interview some of the people, although they didn't want any women interviewing anybody. However, I was able to, to do research. And in the long run, that really helped me because I learned how to research important people that were going to be interviewed. And guess what? I used it for USA Today when I started doing Q&A half-page interviews. I knew how to do the research. I knew how to do it. I'd done it all, except I hadn't done it on air. I'd done it off air. So it was a real good introduction to how to do interviews and do it, you know. And I wanted to, I'm not going to talk at you, but tell you a few things that I found out in journalism. The hardest thing, you guys, whether you're going into journalism or you're going into something else, is to find out the truth. The majority of people in this country lie to you. I don't care if they're Republicans, Democrats, hedge funders, they lie. So what you have to do is figure out a way to get to the truth. If you can look at them in the eye, that helps because you can tell when somebody's lying a lot better than you can't tell by email, certainly can't tell anything by text. But if you can interview it, like if you're going to interview somebody, even a radio interview is okay because you can tell a lot from a voice. But as you know, you, uh, but... Uh, 
Anyway, if you, if you can interview somebody in person, which I managed to do with most of the interviews that I did, uh, that would really help. Uh, so the thing that you, the, the hardest thing for you uh, guys are, are going to get some find out who's telling the truth and who isn't. You know, there's three things that I can think of that you need to be a journalist or a success in life in general: curiosity. If you're curious about and you ask questions, you're going to go a long way. If you sit there and go, uh, you're not going to go anywhere. Uh, there's an old uh, mid uh, Midwestern word called stick to itiveness. That means don't give up. Uh, turn uh, a, every no into a yes. So many women I knew gave up way too soon. They thought, well, they're never going to hire anybody. I guess I'll just go and do something else. And if you give up, yeah, guess what? You're, you're gone. But if you stick with it, eventually something will happen. The big luck thing for me in journalism, other than I worked for, helped put Entertainment Tonight on the air, and I worked for CBS television, radio, all of that, was U.S. Today starting. I got a chance to do, and I'll pass these around that you can look at, a half-page Q&A interview. And the reason I got to do those at the, is, the, is the guy that Bob uh, Al Newarth, who started the paper, said one half of the people I hire are going to be minorities and women. So I had a chance to be an interviewer because I happened to be the right gender. I was a woman, and then and they and he hired you know Asians, blacks, Hispanics, Iranians. I mean, you name it. It didn't make any difference as long as you were a minority or and or a woman. You have you got you got hired, and that was really a big help. And that was my my luck thing to be able to do really important interviews. Two things I wanted to talk about, two things that I did. One was I went to Chernobyl five years after the accident. Chernobyl was a nu nuclear accident, you probably guys probably know about that, uh, in Belarus. I flew to, to Kiev and then into, went into uh, Belarus, into Gomel. I was there for a week and it was still radioactive as heck. I mean, I, the Gagra counter went off the chart on my feet. And I said, oh, I guess I'm going to have to take these shoes off, like a fool, not realizing it was also going into my body. And Dr. Gale, who also you know, did a lot of, lot of work with, with the people who had gotten ready, he said, well, you're going to be okay for about 30 years. If you don't get it in 30 years, you're probably not going to get cancer from radiation. Well, it was 32 years ago. I didn't get cancer from the radiation. I guess it's okay. But it was really bad, you know. And uh, it was really an interesting thing to see, though, the Russians just did, didn't let anybody know that, that that something bad had happened. So the little kids were playing in 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 the in the dirt and stuff, and it was all radioactive. All of a sudden, one day they decided, okay, we're going to get the kids all out of them, load them all up, got them out of there. So you, I was able to see, look just in windows. You couldn't go in the in the houses. You could look in the window and see breakfast on the table. You could see coloring books, workbooks from kids in school. But the thing that really made the biggest impression on me was the way things looked, vegetables and stuff. A carrot was this big. A turnip was this big. Mushrooms were huge. Everything was giant because the radiation had, had grown everything huge. And some people had gone back there. They were maybe 75 years old to live. They said, we're going back here, even though they told us we can't. The Russians didn't kill us. The Germans didn't kill us. Work, what's a little radiation? I mean, you're not, 75 years old, you might look at it like that. And they did, and I don't know how long they lived, but they moved back into their houses, and they were growing these giant 
not realizing that was, was going to happen with the vegetables and stuff. So anyway, uh, that was, uh, you had any questions on Gomo at all? Or, or radiation covering that story? Did the Russian government restrict you in any way? Like, were you like, told, oh, you can't go, like, you can't report on this, you can't do that, report on this? No, no, they, you know, I was there for a magazine. I wasn't there with USA Today, and, and they, they didn't know why I was there. Just They thought I was just wandering around, so I didn't tell them why I was there. And so if, if you don't tell them anything, and, you know, and they don't have a record on you coming for something, you're okay. But I got the second pastor on this, because I was stupid enough to go there, uh, I got the, uh, the uh, key to the city of Gomo, and they don't do very many of this. Uh, it was like... Uh, Eight, uh, 1142 is when they did it. All wood, and I, I'm very proud of that. It's uh, interesting. I don't know anybody else who's got that, but then I don't, also don't know anybody else who went and spent a week in Gomo either. Now they have tours there. You, you can spend money and take a tour there. I mean... <laughs> well, what point of your career were you at when you went? So what, that, what's the year? What was that? 70, uh, no, no, uh, 91 or 2. I was at it with USA Today. Uh -huh. They might have known it if they check, you know, they check every journalist. But I didn't wasn't going there as a journalist. I said, I'm I'm here to write some stuff. That's all I so said. Freelance. Freelance, yeah. Okay. I, no, but I was I had a magazine assignment for uh, from a magazine, uh, and but I didn't tell them that. I just said I'm here to write some stuff, and they thought, well, they didn't believe it, you know. So uh, anyway, I was I had I was able to talk to people through an interpreter. None of them could speak English, and. Uh, the worst part was getting there because uh, Aeroflat flew all over that area, and there, the, the planes would run out of gas all the time. Uh, the e, people would be playing cards in the in in the aisles, and the and the tables would be going back and forth down the aisles. Nothing was glued down. There were no seat belts. It was really awful. Uh, when I got the airplane? there, airplane, yeah. They were crashing domestically all the time because it run out of the gas. And there was no rules. And I wanted, in the worst way, to go to uh, Siberia, but I wasn't able to go because all the domestic airlines uh, were closed because they were trying to throw uh, Yeltsin out. And so I was able to, uh, to cover that for USA Today. It just happened to be there when I was doing this other story. And they were trying to throw him out, but they didn't close the international uh, airport but they closed the domestic airports. At that point, I was so nervous. There was a, a film crew behind me from NBC, and I said, oh, what have you guys been here for? I had lost it by then. They said, where have you been lately, lady? We've been covering the coup. I said, oh, you know, just And then I got on a British Airways flight, and I, they said, welcome to, Brit uh, to Britain, and I broke into tears and started crying. I didn't cry up till that point, but I mean, if you are on an international airline, and even though it's in a place like Russia, they can't touch you, and they can't touch the airline because it's it's it was now British territory. You know. So anyway, that was that. And then the other thing was Antarctica. That was, and I've got all the kinds of stuff that uh, things on Antarctica that you can you can look at. Uh, I was lucky enough to be able to go there for three months. They asked me if I wanted to go. They, I got to go to do things for USA Today, Gannett News Service, and the London Times. One other reporter who was along was from uh, the London Observer, and just two reporters that were invited along. The rest were just Greenpeace people. And it was something that you can't imagine because nobody gets to go down there. Every once in a while they invite a few reporters 
to McMurdo, which is the Navy station, but you go with what they call a minder. You don't go anywhere unless you've got a Navy person with you. I was on the Greenpeace ship, so nobody was watching anything I did, and we went to all the uh, bases in Antarctica. Uh, they were doing the first environmental, environmental uh, protests on the continent of Antarctica, and it was unbelievable to go to, to all these places, you know. I would write about everything they were doing, uh -huh. and then I would, this was before uh, they had anything except you called on the phone, I would have $600 phone call bills to back to USA Today, which of course they paid for, and facts, I would fax things back. There was no internet or anything, and it's very difficult to live with your source. Greenpeace thought I should write nice things about them. I wrote what I saw. And I saw some things that weren't very nice that they were doing, and then they wouldn't speak to me for a couple of days. So that's so. If you're going to live with your source, it's just like when anybody goes w with the army in in, in uh, Ukraine or anything. You never know whether they're going to invite you back if you if you don't write what they what they would like you to write. But uh, I've never asked Greenpeace to come back. <laughs> but I don't think they would ask me back because I did not write. But I just wrote what I saw. You know, they were doing things like laying under bulldozers, and the bulldozer would stop right before they hit them. And there, were, there was no doctor on, on board the ship. And I said, where is the doctor? And they said, he, they didn't pass the psych test. And you know, because you, everybody had a psych test, except me. I didn't have one because they said, dare, I'm not, I don't mean, I'm not crazy. I'm just a little bit nuts to be here. But, but uh, they, the two journalists did not have to have a psych test. But the doctor didn't pass it, so it didn't make it. There was a nurse there. So I said to the nurse, what if I had, a, had something like appendicitis? She said, oh, that's simple. I could do that. They just faxed down to me the directions on how to do the operation, and I would do it. And I thought, oh, that's wonderful. <laughs> Luckily, nobody had appendicitis, but that's what they would have done, you know. So it was probably the most exciting story of my life. Would I do it now? No. Oh, I'm glad I did it then, yes. And I would do it over again if I were the age I was when I went there. You know, it was really, really... you have any questions about Antarctica? What year was that? 1990. I had a, sh a shortwave radio, and I listened uh, to the uh, inaugural address of uh, George H.W. Bush. And one of the things that happened that I was very proud of, he was meeting with the Japanese president in the White House, and he asked them why they were killing so many whales, because I had written a story before, the day before, telling about all the, all the, peop all the whales they were catching, uh, killing. It's really a horrible thing to see. They kill them with, like, uh, something automatic, and then they get little, little uh, things go into them, and then they haul them into, uh, into a big uh, Japanese uh, freighter ship, and they cut them up into steaks, which are a delicacy in Japan. It was we're the worst thing I've probably ever seen, but they're not doing it as much now that Greenpeace has been able to stop a lot of it. But, you know, I don't think Americans would eat whale meat, but, you know, it's pretty blubbery, you know. But <laughs> The thing about Antarctica that I will never forget is the total silence. It was so quiet. There wasn't a sound. And there's no snow, it's just ice. Uh, so it doesn't snow. And then there was a great mountain in the back, of a picture in there of a mountain. Uh, the Trans-Antarctic Mountains go across the entire continent, and there's a volcano called Erebus that keeps erupting. And it's, it's magic to sit on this ship and look at, at we were there three weeks sitting there looking, looking at this mountain, uh, and they were trying to keep the Japanese from killing uh, whales. But uh, 
and the penguins. You could sit in the middle of a penguin co colony, and they would just come up and look at you curiously. They weren't afraid because no one had ever been there uh, for the, to attack them. Same thing with like royal al albatross. They would be sitting on their nests and say, "You're you're a royal albatross." I could walk right up to you, and they would they wouldn't do anything because no one had ever attacked them. So that's where I think tourism should not be allowed in Antarctica. You can go down there now and spend a hell of a lot of money, but only to the Antarctic Peninsula. The continent itself is still off limit to tourists, and I'd be out there protesting on that one. You know, just no, because it got to be one. Nobody owns Antarctica. It's 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 it belongs to everybody. And so, one of the things I just read in the paper, or I think I saw on on the news the other day, is that. They're going to start using drones in Antarctica to look at what's underneath the icebergs because that's to find out what's happening with the climate, and that'll be really good. One of the, one of the things that I think that you guys will have to will run into a lot will be artificial intelligence will be used a lot, and drones will be used instead of you talking. Like, if you notice when, they, when there was that earthquake in, in Malibu, they had drones up looking at everything, and it was beautiful. But they they could they could look right away and say, "All right, was there was there a crack here? Was there a crack there?" You couldn't do that before. So drones are really a big help, you know, in in a, for the environment as well as what they're using them for in in war. The Super Bowl, using the camera work was so great. I don't know if you noticed, there were drones right right above those guys, all the taking. Doing the camera work, which oh, so Super much better, Super Bowl, Bowl so much better than if you, before the, you know, so uh, yeah, it's uh, so that's going to have a lot to do with your work in general, certainly journalism. So how quickly were you turning around stories when you were on the Greenpeace ship? Oh, every day. Every day, you, yeah. you were filing a story every day. Every day, and finally they said, "Look, unless somebody gets killed on the Greenpeace ship, don't file on social." That's what they want. They want. They want somebody run over by the bulldozer or something. I said, "I can't make that up. It didn't happen." But uh, they they took a lot of chances. They'd get in these little zodiacs and and go right in front of uh, a steaming Japanese freighter. And if that little zodiac had motor had stopped, we would have gone right over him. But they did that to get pictures, you know, uh, and they had the pictures which were sent back to the to the U.S. I mean, they are really, I guess, sort of silly in some ways, but also very brave in a lot of ways. I mean, they're committed to doing to doing uh, to working for Greenpeace. They don't get paid anything. They they just get the food on the ship and whatever. Drink a lot, you know. There's a lot of drinking goes. <laughs> Captain Blood and some other thing, not not regular wine, just a rum mostly, and and and. Uh, you know stuff like that, scotch, but uh, there were four women on on the ship and twenty six men. The four women were uh, one was a helicopter pilot f from Switzerland, one was a Japanese uh, uh, greenpeacer, and then there was me and a woman who was Syrian, who was the cook, a very good cook, and so that was it. So it was pretty. But they were very nice, the guys were. Nobody made any passes at anybody or anything like that. Well, there was no place to do anything anyway. My guy was in a, in a cabin with three other women. <laughs> there wasn't any privacy, and they were all in cabins with, they had, you know, with, the only one who had any, any privacy was the captain. He had his own place, but other than that, everybody was, you know, with other, with other people, but. How bright was the... How bright was the ice, the reflection on the ice? Very bright, yeah. And it, it, you think it's all white. It's depending upon how the sun hits it. It's shades of 
of blue. pink and blue and, and green and, and everything. Uh, you needed sunglasses to be out looking at them. And when we got on the ship, I was on land a lot. We'd get in those little zodiacs and, 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 and go around uh, to different bases. When you'd go out on the ship, they, they made you dress like you were going outside because you went out with a t-shirt and it was 50 below zero. They said, you, even though you're young, you could have a heart attack. It's too, it's too much to go from a t-shirt to 50 below and have it not affect your heart. I never realized that, but I guess I, so I sort of went along with what they said to do, you know. And they did too. They did not run around with t-shirts when it was that cold like that, you know. What else you want to ask? How did you deal with either people that you interviewed not liking what you wrote about or either the people that you were like sending it to like your organizations not liking what you wrote about? I just said, look guys, I'm going back to the truth. I'm writing what I see. I'm writing the truth. And if you don't like it, I didn't come here as a member of Greenpeace. I came here to, to tell you what's, what's going on. And I said a lot of what I wrote was very positive. But when I, they would be laying under, almost laying under a bulldozer, I said, I said, that's over the top to try to get, get because if they had been run over, they'd have, well, they'd have been dead. Luckily, the bulldozers, they'd go, say this is a bulldozer, and they would go right up to where the guy is, and they stop. I almost had a heart attack a couple times. You know, if they hadn't stopped, they'd have been dead, you know? But they were either foolish or brave, however you want to look at it. I mean, they were kind of like, adventurers, Greenpeace people, as well as do-gooders. They were doing a lot of good, but they also, the average young guy doesn't want to go someplace and lay under a bulldozer, but they were willing to do that, you know? So how did, with the Greenpeace on the ship, so how did the loop come back? Like, did you give them your stories so they knew what you were writing at some point? Or, like, how were they knowing what you were putting in the paper? Oh, somebody faxed it back from from, from Washington. Okay. Yeah. They weren't directly saying, here's oh, my yeah. story for today. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> I faxed it. I, a lot of them I called, just called in. And then it would appear in the, in the paper, and then they would fax it back. So at what point, when did you get into writing the profiles? Was that before or after you did the Greenpeace show? That was before. The profiles? The profiles, yeah. yeah. Let's see, I should talk about those, I guess, a little bit. Uh, yeah, because we want to hear her most memorable interview. I don't know if you can say that now. Oh, yeah. Well, I can, yeah. The Dalai Lama. I loved interviewing him. I was able to spend a half a day with him in a house alone in Santa Monica. And when people say, you want to want to go to a lecture of the Dalai Lama? I said, no, don't think so. Just because, I mean, I, he was incredible. As I guess when you spend so much time meditating, you become something special uh, without realizing it. And he had this tinkling laugh and I, one of the last things I asked him was, how do you deal with being thought of as a god? And he said, but you don't see me, Marianne. This tinkling laugh. I'm just a simple monk. And that's, that's the way he answered that question. He's always thought of himself as a simple monk. He's not, my god, he's you know an incredible man. But he's managed to play both sides. He's, I mean, the Chinese would love to have him dead. They can't kill him. You know, they... they well, I mean, he has guards and all of that, but they, they better not, you know, uh, and so they haven't. But uh, he's already picked the one that's going to uh, come after him. Nobody knows. A lot of people think it might be a woman, it might be a girl, but she's already in training, or he, it's a, I think it's somebody, pretty sure they're saying it's somebody that's in the United States. So it'll be interesting. When he dies, then it'll be announced, you know, and, and right now, I guess he's probably the only one that knows because he's the one who picked the person, you know, and probably a small child, and obviously a small child. Yeah, he was 
Great. And Jimmy Stewart, you all know who he is, right? It's, it's a wonderful life, the Christmas story. One of the most incredible men I've ever met. I interviewed him in his house. Uh, he had a, just a, like a house, like an East Coast house, a colonial house in Beverly Hills. It wasn't a Beverly Hills mansion. It was just a house house. And he had a couple of, uh, uh, of golden retrievers. And I sat and talked to him about, about uh, life in general and in movies and stuff. And he's never thought of himself as a star. He was a, a pilot. He was a, a, a general in the, in the Air Force, in the Army, Army Air Force, and married to a wonderful woman, married once to this woman who had twins, uh, and one of the twins was killed in Vietnam. Uh, they, were, they both went to Vietnam, and they were both, uh, one of them was killed. He was in World War II, and I'm going to put a book together of some of my interviews, and one of the emphasis is going to be, hey guys, patriotism still is not dead. It was there when he, when he did It's a Wonderful Life, and he believed in patriot, patriotism and believed in America and stuff. And I said, there still are people that believe in America. And, I mean, I'm reading a book right now by Joe McCarthy, who, where Trump learned everything from him. He's a senator in, in, in Wisconsin, where I'm from. And he was horrible. He lasted five years, and then finally it all fell apart. The reason it all fell apart was he was a total alcoholic. If he had not been an alcoholic, it might have lasted longer. But if you look at American history, a lot of these people fall apart. Eventually, they're gone. I don't know if that's going to happen now, but you can hope, you know. What about, okay, so you mentioned Jimmy Stewart had, um, what, golden retrievers? Golden retrievers. Can you, tell a, can you tell a person by their dogs? Oh, yeah. Golden, yeah. People that are, are kind and lovely have golden retrievers. Uh -huh. you know. Who do the not nicer ones have? One of the scariest moments of my life. And number one, I was terrified of German shepherds. Absolutely. Because I saw my brother attacked by a couple and almost killed when he was, I was a small child. I went to interview Jarja Gabor. She was one of the Gabor sisters. You guys are way too young to know who they are. I've like heard of the name. Yeah, they were, they were big, big movie stars and, and, and they were from Hungary and they married all kinds of rich men and, and then okay. there were three, three sisters, you know, and they were very gorgeous. And anyway, this one was one of the ones married Conrad Hilton of the Hilton family and all of that. She was married to a, a guy who called himself a German prince. He was no more a German prince than the man on the moon, but he said he was. And he had these tall boots that went up to his, his, his uh, knees, and he would walk on a slate floor in the entry hall back and forth and back and forth. I heard that slate going. But the worst part is I interviewed her. She, wouldn't, she sat across from me about like where you are because she didn't want me to see the, the work that had been done on her face, and, which had been, was considerable. However, she took both, I'm sitting here, and both German Shepherds, who are trained to be attack dogs, were sitting one here and one here on both sides of me, and they were growling. And I'm sitting here like, scared to even open my mouth, even to talk, but I did do the interview. But they'd look at me and they'd go, mm, mm. you know, and it was, I don't know if you've ever been around an attack dog, but I mean, all this, the guy in the hallway would have had to say is, some word or whatever, you are he used it, and I'd have been toast, you know? And, but that's probably the scariest thing I did. Much more scary than, than, than going uh, to Antarctica or Chernobyl because that was real. <laughs> that was something that could really happen to you. Uh, Jimmy Stewart was wonderful. He used these old-fashioned words like I said, what did you think of Grace Kelly? He said, well, I was smitten by Grace Kelly. Girls, uh, guys would like to use a word, uh, something that works would still work with women. 
I'm smitten by you, they would think they would think that was good. That was that was great. It means I really like you. You know, it's a great word. So just remember that they use that word, word smitten. Yeah, yeah. I'm interested in your profile of Netanyahu. Um, I was wondering if you think that he's changed significantly over time since we interviewed him first to become prime minister today. He's exactly the same. I mean, I interviewed him first when he was 36 years old, and he was really good looking. And he he said, "I'm going to come to LA, and I'd like to take you out." And he was, and, he, and I said, uh, "Yeah, yeah, you and about 18 Mossad guys." So as it turned out, he never came to LA, and I, you know, because I I couldn't have gone out with him. You can't go anywhere with him, you know. But anyway, uh, he was the ambassador to the UN then, when I 36 years old when I first interviewed him, and then I interviewed him back in the I guess in the 90s, on the same subject on terrorism, no, no, nothing, he hasn't changed. I could interview him now. He would probably do an interview with me now because I know him. But I wouldn't want to interview him now because by the time the interview is published, he'd maybe be gone. I mean, he's very close to being, having to leave, I think. But he, yeah, he, he was, he, I think that he, his orientation, though, in fairness to him, was that he had a brother who was uh, the only person killed in the Antebbe when they went to rescue people in, the, in, the, in Tebby, he was the one who was killed. And I think that's, he was just a young teenager then, and it solidified his, his hatred of people who, who kill. And so, no, he hasn't, he hasn't changed. He really truly believes that he's got to get rid of Hamas, no matter how, and I don't know how he justifies all these women and children being killed. I don't think he himself even knows, but... Uh, got a lot of problems in Israel right now, you know. But no, that was a good question. Yeah, he, he actually does believe believe the same as he did when he was 36 and I was 76. Any other questions? Oh. Who was the most memorable woman? Lucille Ball, maybe? Or Lucille Ball. She was, I mean, you guys know who she, she is. As you, you probably watch her things on television. She's still being me. I interviewed her when she was going to do a second television show, and she did for a while. And I started interviewing her, and she started to cry. And I thought, what do I do with Lucille Ball, who's crying? I mean, and she was remembering the past, and Desi and her kids when they were little, and what television was like then. And she was afraid it wasn't going to work now. And and it was, uh, but I thought she was, she was, she was just a remarkable woman. She is. I mean, she could make everybody laugh. She makes you guys laugh, probably. If you if you if you uh, if you listen to her shows and all. I mean, done in the fifties. And, and 60s, and she still, well, she was a great comedian. This guy was one of the, I brought this book, you probably have read some of his stuff, Louis L'Amour, by any chance? Mm -hmm. No, he was, he's written like a hundred novels on the West. People are still reading him today. And I interviewed him at his house in, in uh, uh, on Sunset, and he pushed a button and, and, and a thing went around. And he said, I can research any book I want to write right from my house. They went back to the 15th century books he had. He had an incredible library. Nobody knew he had it. But uh, the reason I brought him up to you guys that I, I read something recently where people were saying their grandchildren were still were reading Louis L'Amour. Now, maybe if you like Western stuff, maybe that's it. You know, Because he was a Western writer, wrote about the West, uh, a legend for, for a writer. Uh, Let's see, Jacques Cousteau, you may know who he is. You, do you guys know who he is? He, he was an uh, underwater uh, guy. 
show way yeah. back in the day. Way back, his son, yeah. Jean Michel, is here in town. He, he lives here, yeah. They hear Cousteau around, uh, around here. Mm -hmm. they do. Yeah, I spent three days with him on his ship in, in, in the Sea of Cortez. He was looking for manta rays, and the which were almost all gone. Fascinating man. He had a, he had a French chef on his on, on his ship. He had the best French food you'd ever want in the middle of nowhere, you know. So he, but he still uh, he was great. David Copperfield, maybe some guys you may have heard of him. He's a magician. I interviewed him. Uh, I was sitting in, in a theater in, uh, in uh, a theater where people perform in uh, Texas, in, in and. Uh, Talked to him, and he—he was—he's a very interesting man, very cerebral, and still working. You know, yeah. So, did you only um, do like print stories, or did you ever do like radio or anything other? Yeah, I did some radio, and I—I I, I never got a chance to do TV. And by the time I, I got into doing the things with the USA Today, I—I uh, I liked doing that so much that I never even tried to do anything else. Yeah, yeah. So when you're interviewing these people, they have a lot of experience in whatever field they're in. Do you enter the interview thinking to yourself, like, I've done enough research where I'm equal to them and I'm able to have a full conversation at their level? Or do you come in thinking I'm going to ask them as an expert and I'm coming as a questioner? Good question. I never asked, I did so much research on them, I never asked a question hardly that I didn't know the answer to. I mean, I really, really researched them. And, I, and I'm... I've had many, many sort of different lives, and I've been I've lived a life that's been. Uh, I was married to somebody who was a celebrity, so I so I I I lived that whole that whole that whole life. I know what it's like to be famous, uh, to to be part of somebody who is famous, and so uh, I was not intimidated by anybody anybody I interviewed because I had a background of of, of that. I think I I didn't do it for USA Today, but I interviewed Clint Eastwood once, and I did it for, did him for an airline magazine, and I was sitting next to him only because one of my best friends was Marianne Rogers, who was married to Kenny, who was also a friend, and he she said Marianne, why don't you sit next to Clint so you can talk to him? So I was just talking to him about life in general, and I finally said to him, don't you sometimes want to just ride off into the sunset? And he said, you know, Marianne, I've been doing that all my life. You know, and he's just a really kind, wonderful man. Now he talked to me because I was a friend of a friend of his. I mean, if I'd have been just sat number one, I wouldn't have been able to sit down next to him. His Marianne was sitting next to him, and then she got up and moved across the aisle. And we just, it was just a short flight from Vegas to Burbank. But uh, amazing man. So didn't you interview him at one time too? And you were you were saying, aren't you asking like? Like, are you, like, can answers? Yes. Like, are yeah. you? Yeah, I interviewed him once, and he could have walked away or, or not. I mean, I interviewed him once, and I said, it was a movie was coming. I said, Clint, are you on autopilot right now? Could we get off autopilot and just talk? And he laughed, and he said, okay. He could have walked away because I was, and no matter what I asked him, he would turn back to something about the latest movie, which, he was, which is what all anybody is, wants to talk to him about anyway, usually. So, yeah. Kind of going off of that question, did it take you like a long time to kind of get to that capability of walking in with like sort of a confidence and like um, an ability to be, be like sure of yourself? Were you, or were you like that from the start? I was or, born with that. Okay. Yeah. When I was nine years old, I wanted to be a journalist and I was I sit with a, with a uh, geography book and I'd say, where am I going to go today? And I'd point 
and it would be someplace in Europe. One time it was Antarctica. I said, no, I'm going there. No idea how I'd ever get to go there. But I was nine when I decided I wanted to be a journalist. I had a family that was very supportive of me. In an era where women just got married and had kids, my dad used to say, you could be anybody you want. Fathers never said that to, to their daughters back then. But no, I just, I started, yeah, I was born was pretty confident, yeah. Uh, what are the tips that you use to build rapport with your interviewers? Pardon? The tips for building rapport. Build rapport. Oh, uh, just smile, it helps, you know, smile, and uh, just talk, like we're having a conversation like now, just try to have a conversation, not a, not a formal kind of interview. The setting that you have helps. If it, it could be in their house, that would be great. Even in a hotel uh, room or office or something. Not, I, I interviewed Chuck Yeager in the airport on his way to get the, uh, to get the middle of uh, freedom from, from, from Reagan. You know, he was the guy who broke the sound barrier and the right stuff was, was done about him, that movie. Uh, so, yeah, I think just, it's something that, that becomes a part of, yeah, you, at first maybe when you're starting out, that's why that radio station is so great. You can, you can experiment with stuff and nobody knows if you maybe made a mistake that isn't, you know, they're going to know if you make a mistake on NBC, but you could make a mistake at a college, uh, college radio station, and no, nobody cares, right? I mean, that's, not the, that, that's what you're here for. And it's we're pre-recorded, too, so yeah. we could always edit that yeah, out or, yeah. you know, re-ask mm -hmm. the question. Sure, re-ask the question, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. So I'm interested in some of the questions you asked, and specifically like the level of complexity at which you ask them. So do you go into an interview with like very like high-level complexity and kind of simpler questions, or what's the balance you take? Well, what I do is, the number one most important thing is to listen. If you listen to the answer to the question, many times you will ask a totally different question next. You'll go off into a, diff a different, uh, a different uh, tangent. So that's, that's what I, I would do. I would ask the... Uh, I would listen, and then I would I would ask a question, and nobody ever walked out on me, or, or, or you know, or wouldn't wouldn't talk to me. Yeah. So would you, when like going into an interview, would you usually, was it dependent on the person, or would you always kind of come uh, at it from like a normal conversation, and then kind of from there decide how to like what questions to ask and like the complexity levels. It was just innate, sort of an innate thing. I can't, it's pretty hard to tell you how to do an interview. It's just like saying, how do you sing? You can either sing or you can't. And in my case, it was like, I knew how to do an interview. Yeah. yeah. And I just, something that was innate. I did things that helped, like when I was in high school, I did a thing called extemporaneous speak, speaking, which I won a state contest and that. That's a thing where you are given one hour to, to take a news item and make a five-minute speech on it. And so I won a whole summer. I spent a whole summer reading Newsweek and Time for the whole summer. That prepares you for knowing how to answer questions. You know, anything you can do like that, uh, any, anything you can do, that kind of stuff helps. You know, you know it, you, it, rather, so if there's anything you can do at all, uh, like a forensics or like speech making or anything, that's a big help. You had a question. Oh, um, I was going to ask, sometimes when I'm interviewing people, like especially if it's a public figure, or I'm talking to them about something controversial, I'm like, I want to ask the important questions, but I also don't want to like upset them. So how do you toe that line? It's knowing 
sort of knowing what to do. I mean, like when I was do, doing uh, doing news, I would not do the stories that were go after somebody's house and say, how do you feel now that your child is dead? I wouldn't do this. A lot of people will do those kind of interviews. I would not. So I would, you, you have to sort of play it by ear and see if it's, if it's something that's going to really upset them, try to figure out maybe a, a different way of asking it or a softer way. But uh, you just have to kind of look at them. You know, if, there again, if you if you're interviewing in person, if if you're if you're interviewing uh, by telephone or something, you can tell from the timbre or the voice if they're getting upset, you know, or whatever. What specifically kind of did you want to ask me? Do you think? Like if I was interviewing like a representative and I was asking like about a policy and kind of probing for a congressional representative, a candidate. This problem. I mean, that's what they're there for. Jeez, <laughs> you know, you should be able to ask a question. I mean, they're running for office. They, you know, if they walk out, you know, they won't walk out again. But, but they're used to getting soft, soft questions. Whether they're Republicans or Democrats today, people are scared to death to ask a question. You know, they're afraid. You know, and no, just I would just. It depends upon now if you're talking to uh, somebody who's not been interviewed very much, or or it's just like a cancer researcher, say, or something like that, maybe you'd be a little bit, be careful how you ask the question, but no, I, I, politicians are fair game as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> they just are, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, I was just going to ask, wait, it left me now. Oh. So I was going to say, so you want to be prepared, and like you, you were saying, like, reading stuff, and I feel like for those of you covering the Middle East, Stuff. It's good to read it, read it every day so you've kept up with it. So then you kind of know when you're talking to someone, you're talking about the most current thing that's going on and you, then you've got the background. Because that's the thing with news that's different from writing your story, your papers, is with news you'd want to start with what's new first, then you might fill in some of the backstory. So always, you know, knowing what's, you know, what's in the news and how it's been going. I feel like if you're keeping up with it all along, then it's going to be easier to be asking questions. You don't, you know, won't be as hard. But also, like, having a list of questions yeah. in advance, you've thought it through, yeah. but then listening, and like you, you, you had mentioned, that you might ask a question in a different order based yeah. on the person's yeah. response. Well, also, like, you could put these on your phones right now. BBC World, they have two minutes of news all day long. And in that two minutes, it's world news. You could know what the hell's going on in Israel, Palestine, uh, whatever, who's been elected, this or that. I mean, two minutes, they tell you everything. And you'll, you won't find that out in American news because they're, they're, they don't do that. Uh, the, the Economist is an expensive magazine, but I subscribe to that both on online and also in the news uh, yeah, a magazine. Uh, new York Times, you can get, I, it's probably... for free. Uh, as a student, we can get the Washington Post and the New York Times. Oh, get those. Oh, that's really important. Mm -hmm. I mean, very important, yeah. Uh, we also look at Al Jazeera and, like, other um, Israel news or, you know, different world publications, too. We encourage the students not to just go with the mainstream. Yeah, well, I, I, I listen to Al Jazeera every day besides is, Israeli things. I, as I look at El, they've got a different slant on things. And the thing is that they, have, they may have a different slant, but they have so much money. Uh, they're sponsored by Qatar, uh, and they, if they have to send a reporter somewhere, they just say go. They don't say, we don't have the money to send you, or we you know we we sent you last week or whatever. They just say go. They've got enough, uh, unqualified amounts of money to send reporters places. You know, 
So that that helps, you know. Yeah, and there's a lot of stuff you can get online. Yes. Yeah, I remember. Um, I was going to ask, how do you think the best way of like getting your foot in the door is? Like I know, like you mentioned like earlier, like like just like grit and determination, like not giving up. But do you think like taking every story you can get is like a really good thing? And also, how do you think that um, like the changing landscape of like news and media? Because now I think a lot of it is digital. And I know a lot of people are worried about like newspapers and radios dying. So how do you think that affects like what we're trying to do as like future? I go digital, go for digital because that's where it's going to be. I mean, they're they're closing. I mean, so many local papers all over the country, really good papers have folded now because they can't they can't make it anymore. It's all going to be uh, artificial intelligence, and it's going to be digital. So I would just learn how to do the digital thing. That's what it's going to be. I think, don't you? It's going to yeah. be to, yeah. To these days, like if you're going to get hired at KUIT here, which they hire people right out of school, you need to be able to go and it's multimedia journalist is the actual job title, and so you need to be able to go out and cover a story on your own, putting your you know people are record do, doing their stories with their phones even now. It's a luxury to have a cameraman, so you're out on your own, kind of doing doing everything. Yeah, and the more you can learn and be comfortable with the technology, because every station you go to. It's, you're going to have to learn new stuff with the yeah. technology, and you guys are pretty good at that because you grew up with it. But, yeah, it's just a matter of being able to be independent and tell, tell the stories on your own. And also, like, your colleagues here at school, they might get a job at a radio station or a TV station, and then they could recommend you for that starter job. Marianne, I thought you got a job in, eventually in the newsroom by taking a job outside of the newsroom, right? No, it's, it's a kind of like, I, w I was outside the newsroom looking at it with, they used to have a wire then. They, this is way back before they ever had internet or cell phones. They, they had a wire, a, a, a thing that went around, like a telecopter. The news came in like a telecopter on there. Yeah. So I would be reading that and they would say, we're never going to hire you as a news reporter. Get out of the newsroom. And I, w I, ha I had, a, had gotten a job as, as an assistant to the production manager. Well, I kept going in the newsroom, and finally they said, well, she's just graduated from Marquette University. We're not going to fire you, but you have to go to the front of the building and be the receptionist for when people come in so that you aren't tempted to go near the newsroom. Well, I immediately quit and went to Savannah, Georgia, and that was another whole story. But, yeah, that's if they would, they would get you as far away from news as, 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 uh, as they could so that you, you had no access. Any other questions? We gotta go. I know you get. We probably yeah, gotta get going. But it has been such like. Well, thank you. And interesting to hear your stories. And well, thank you. I'm glad I was able to like. I'm glad you came too. Any other quick questions? Otherwise, we can wrap up. I have a uh, Clarissa, uh, you said that you would come in and be an expert on the questions that you were already asking. So how did you deal with like people ever talking down to you or acting like you didn't know what they were talking about? They were talking down to me. Yeah, like maybe you would ask a question that you know the answer to and they might act like they're maybe better than you if they knew the answer. That never happened to me. Okay. <laughs> no, because I, I knew, you know, and, and, and they knew that I knew and without me saying anything, yeah. I mean, of course, I got talked down to a lot when I was first starting out because I was a woman trying to get into, into uh, the media. But no, once I started doing like those interviews and stuff, no, I, I never ran into that. So Ever. what age were you, though? You were older, too. You weren't still in your 20s. Oh, no, I was in my 40s. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe. 
And maybe sometimes they try to, you know, um, get you off your game, you know? Yeah, oh, sure. Just, yeah. you know, have the confidence to ask. Like, I mean, that's what it is. You're always going to be, like, nervous. Even going into an interview, you're always, I mean, did you, maybe not you, Mary. Oh, no, I, I no, I, no, no, I was. I mean, yeah, I, I, I was, I knew I was interviewing somebody. You know, I wasn't sitting here saying, oh, well, you know, no. You know, I knew I was interviewing somebody. And also, looking the right way, a perfect example was I used to wear the best suit I had. That back then you had suits. I wore heels. I looked, I looked perfect. But people would would go to interview. They go. I did a lot of interviews at Blair House in D.C. And heads of state would come in there and interview the president of Finland, the president of El Salvador. I was supposed to interview the president, one of the Nehru's, got one of the Gandhis from from India. And they said, oh, "We brought you in last week. We're not bringing you in this week." <laughs> So they were. They sent somebody from USA Today. She had jeans on and on over shoes. She didn't look right. The uh, Gandhi took one look at her and said, "I'm not doing this interview." And turned around and walked upstairs. In other words, he felt it was an affront for he, as head of state, to have somebody come in to interview her looking like that. So be conscious of how how you look when you interview with somebody. You don't have to be dressed in designer clothes or something, but don't go, don't come and run over shoes and blue jeans that are, you know, that are, it depends who you're interviewing. If you're interviewing somebody in show business, you can wear blue jeans, but just make sure that they they look okay, you know? Or where you're at, like if you're out on a, at a farm, you yeah. know, you're gonna wear different things. Oh yeah, yeah, where you are makes a difference, yeah. Thanks you guys so much for coming. Thank you so much, yeah. I enjoy talking to you guys a lot.